Here's what I want to do this morning. I'm so excited for our conversation today. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. Grab a Bible, get on your device, however you get there. Genesis 1. If you're like, how do I get there? It's easy today. Just go to the very first page, right? It is the first book, first chapter. We're going to be in the first verse. And then there is in your program a little thing for you to take some notes on that I think are going to be worthwhile. And we're beginning a conversation that's going to last six weeks. So six-week conversation, and the conversation is simply called Made to Be. And the whole conversation is about what were we made to be. Particularly, we're speaking to what is God's heart, his desire, his vision, his dream for manhood, and what is his heart, his desire, his dream, his vision for womanhood. So we're going to be talking to men and women throughout this series, and it's going to be a six-week series that we're going to have together engaging in conversation. And I hope you'll come. I hope you'll invite others to come. Now, I've been asked several questions as we pursue this series. One of the questions that I've been asked is, why in the world would you do a series like this, right? I've had people say, hey, why would you choose to do this series? Let me give you several reasons, okay? So I want to set the stage for where we're going. I hope that you'll come back for all of it or at least listen in. But why in the world would I do this first and foremost? It is a very personal series to me. Very personal to me. Here's what I mean by that. All I mean by that is this, is I'm a father. And God gave to my wife and I two boys and one girl. And so it's a very personal series to me because my wife, Jennifer, and I uh, did our very best. Our kids are grown, gone, all of them out of the house now, grown and gone. But we did our best with our two boys to raise them as men. We didn't want them to end up being boys who could drive and shave that look like men. We wanted to raise them into men. It's a very personal conversation. I have one girl. I just said goodbye to her. She came home for a quick visit, just said goodbye. She's on her own, lives several hours away. She's on her own, living her own independent life. My wife and I's desire in raising our little girl was that she would grow up, that she would grow up and not just look like a woman, but that she would be a woman, robust in character, able to make decisions. My daughter is a strong-willed girl, and I love the fact God gave me a strong-willed girl because we wanted to raise her to be somebody who could make decisions with a robust character. Very, very personal series, but that's not the only reason we're doing it. We're doing this series because it's personal to me, but we're doing this series because there is a lot of confusion right now, and that confusion many times leads to chaos. The confusion right now many times leads to chaos. Here's what I mean by that. We live at a time, in a culture, in a time when people are saying, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Who's a man? Who's a woman? And who decides? (laughs) And who decides? In fact, in our culture right now, the whole conversation of gender, and you can write this down, it might be good to refer back to it, is, is something that is determined by social construct. You're like, what is that? Just write it down, I'll tell you. Gender is determined by social construct in our culture. I'm not saying it's good, right? I'm just saying that's how it's determined. That society determines gender. They they determine gender for people. And that's how it works in our culture. You're like, explain that. Okay, I'm happy to. There's all kinds of things that are determined by social construct. Just think about it. Uh, whether or not what you're wearing is in style or not is all social construct. Can we get that right? Like, I'm always asking my kids, like, am I, is it okay, you know? Like, is it going to be cool, right? And here's what you know about style. When it goes out of style, it's bound to come back into style. Hang on to it, right? But that's all social construct. Or, or verbiage, phrases are social construct. Uh, in our society, that we take phrases, and, and our society determines what they mean many times. 
right? When I was a teenager, I was just talking with some of our Grace Student Ministries people, right? And, and they kind of threw one on me this morning, right? And they were talking to me, and, and this is what they said to me. I don't even know what they were talking about. I was so thrown off. They, it was actually, in full disclosure, it was my son, right? And then this is what he said. He said, Dad, that is so dope. Raise your hand if dope meant drugs when you were a teenager. Anybody? Yeah. I'm like, no, I didn't do dope. I never promise you, right? And supposedly that's like really, really cool now, right? It's a social construct. We live in a culture where gender is a social construct. Let me give you some illustrations of what I mean. In Scotland, children in Scotland are set to be told that your gender is what you decide. From the first year at primary school, under their education guidelines, the guidelines will be part of the teaching resource, which, which must be provided as a core subject. So along with reading and, and math, this is a core subject. The newspaper reports that the guidelines instruct teachers to tell children that as young as, these children are as young as five, so they're starting on kindergarten, your sex is what you're told by a doctor when you're born. So most people are told you're either a a boy or a girl, but your gender, on the other hand, is what you decide. The draft guidelines then assert adding, people might think they know your gender because of your clothes, how you look, or the things you like, but you are a unique person. You are who you are. Social construct. Uh, beyond that, some of you are aware on a major television show or uh, network uh, is a show called This Is Life with Lisa Ling. And so some of you are familiar with that. Maybe you watch you know, that network or whatever, and there's good things on there and this, that, and the other thing. But here's the deal. This uh, particular season coming up, she says, and I quote, her favorite episode this season is about gender fluidity. So for some of you, that's a new term, right? What gender fluidity? What in the world is that? I don't identify with either gender gender fluid. She said, that's my favorite episode. She opens with a teen who decides that she is agender, meaning neither man or woman. And this is what she says, and I quote, we are in the midst of a gender revolution. It's being led by young people who don't feel they fit into any particular box, who can't check male or female. It's exciting these kids now have the tools, she says, to be able to express these feelings. People who felt this way in previous generations had no tools to express them. She says it's really a beautiful episode. And not only that, I would say maybe it's epitomized by a particular college called Holyoke College. Holyoke College is an all-girls college. It was called one of the, it was one of the schools that was one of the seven, called the Seven Sisters. At one time, you may not have known this, the Ivy League schools were all male, And so they created these seven sister schools to give women an opportunity to be educated. Some really good things came as a result of this, right? Give women a chance to be educated. And they wanted to roll out uh, their admission standards to show how progressive they are. And so I'm reading from their documents. Mount Holyoke College welcomes applications for our undergraduate program from any qualified student who is female or identifies as a woman. As a pioneer in higher education, Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission of providing access to excellence for academically talented women, regardless of their economic background. The college values each student's development, both academically and personally, and recognizes that self-identity may change over time. Now, stay with me on this. What does that mean? Well, it means this. If you read their documents, the following academically qualified students can apply for admission at Holyoke College. Stay with me on this. Biologically born female identifies as a woman. 
Biologically born female identifies as a man. Biologically born female identifies as other. Biologically born female does not identify as either woman or man. Biologically born male identifies as a woman. Biologically born male identifies as other. And when other, they're stating that includes women. Biologically born with both male and female anatomy called intersex and identifies as a woman. It's interesting, right? And it begs a question. The, the, the two questions in particular come to mind. It begs this question, well, who can't apply here to go to school, right? Which might have been easier to write. And, and, and that's an easy answer because the, the only one who can't apply to go to school here is biologically born male who identifies as a male. That's the only one who can't apply here, right? But, but then it begs this question, what happens if I go to school there and I change my mind. Like I identify one way. Well, they're ahead of the, the, the game on that, ahead of the question. They said, what happens if you have somebody who comes and change their mind? Will they be removed? No. Once students are admitted, the college supports them regardless of their sex or gender identity, which is consistent with our current practice. All I'm saying by that, and don't read, all I'm saying by those examples is there's confusion right now. There's a lot of confusion in our culture. Can I say this? Not only is there confusion that leads to chaos, but can I say that there is, is what I would call stereotypes or caricatures that lead to distortion? There, there's stereotypes that lead to distortion. Here's what I mean by that. Men in the room. Men in the room. How many of you have ever heard this term? I want you to raise your hand. Man up. Anybody ever heard that? Right? Anybody? Put your hand down. Or how many of you heard, heard this? Be a man. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that, right? Yeah, okay. Here's the problem. Somebody says that to us, like, I, I wonder what they mean, right? Like, what does it mean to be a man, to act like a man, to man up, right? I mean, is it kind of being Chuck Norris, right? Is, is it kind of the bodybuilder? Is it a GQ successful business guy? I mean, what does it mean to be a man up? Is it anywhere from Chuck Norris to everybody loves Raymond, kind of cuddly and stupid, you know what I mean? I mean, where in there does it fit? And, and I was interested because I came across this article, and this article says this. It's in the New Yorker. Here's what it says. The report gives the overall impression that just like femininity, masculinity is increasingly defined by both playing to and against type. Listen. Masculinity is growing a really impressive beard and ordering a kale salad for lunch. Masculinity is knowing Super Bowl trivia and being an emotionally supportive partner. But if this, they say, this is the New Yorker, not me. If this makes it sound like men are joining women and having less gender-bound view of their sense of self, it's not that simple. According to the research, even though millennial men are more than older men okay with using concealer, I had to ask what that meant, okay? But now I know. My wife told me, you know, I know now what that is. So millennial men are more okay with that than older men at using concealer and learning to poach eggs they also say they're more frustrated than ever with not knowing what it means to be a man. Look here a second. I'm going to tell you something. This is why you got to keep coming back. Because when men don't know what it means to be a man, here's what they do. They become passive and apathetic, and passive and apathetic men hurt women. Or they become angry and aggressive because they don't know how to be a man, and angry and aggressive men hurt women. The series is important. 
I will tell you this, I've shared this in this room before, so if you've heard it before, I apologize in advance, and I apologize for my language in advance. I want to quote for the sake of emphasis. I had a married couple in my office. They were struggling, and, and as they're struggling, she's telling me everything her man is, is not doing. He, like for 40 minutes, boom, like I'm like, take a breath, right? This dude was his, he was like two of me. He had arms the size of my waist. I mean, he's just kind of like sitting there staring forward. I rolled my chair over right in front of him. I prayed to Jesus, don't let him hit me. And then I asked him a question. This was my question. I looked him square in the eye, and he almost stared right past me. And I said, who taught you how to be a man? His answer to me, I will never forget. It's why we're doing this series. And I quote, he said, damn it, nobody did. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. End quote. You see, there are distortions and there are boys who can shave and drive who can't figure out how to be men. In the same vein, there's women who are like, what does it mean to be a woman? Act like a lady. To What does that mean? Is it anywhere from, because our culture has all kinds of things. Is it anywhere from the swimsuit model on, on the front of Sports Illustrated to Joanna Gaines to Ronda Rousey? I am woman, hear me roar. I mean, where does it fit in there, Right? And I don't need a man. And so that's why we're having the conversation. It's personal. There's confusion. There's distortion. And listen, and the church cannot ignore it. You see, in the middle of the confusion, I think it's the church that needs to offer clarity. In the middle of the distortion, it's the church that needs to offer direction. Listen close. Listen, listen, listen. And for some of you in the room, in the middle of struggle, in the middle of struggle, it's the church that needs to offer a safe place for you to struggle. This conversation, I will tell you, for some of you, you'd be like, man, I can't believe the stuff you read. And for others of you, you're like, man, that's my struggle. And I want to tell you that this conversation, we will navigate truth with grace-filled compassion. That somehow people who struggle have to be able to struggle in safety into God, not away from God. Every parent in the room, I want to talk to you for a second, then we got to roll. Every parent, we, you, cannot put your head in the sand. This isn't, it might happen, it is. Your children are navigating it. You can keep them at home with you till they're 18. They are going to navigate it. And so we can't, as parents, put our head in the sand. The church can't ignore it, and the church, listen close, everybody who's like, I know how I feel about it. The church has to find its voice and its tone. Its voice and its tone. And for some of us that are in the room and we're struggling, my advice to you is to struggle into God, not away from God. And so here's what we got to do. I need your, I need your help. We got to build a foundation. Like, like today, I got to have a very foundational talk. Can we do that? Because the rest of the series, we're going to talk about some very practical things. A couple weeks, we're going to talk to guys. I really need gals in the room. And then a couple weeks, we're going to talk to gals. I really need guys in the room, right? I don't need your help teaching it, right? But I'm, what, what I'm simply saying is we need to be here to, to, to be a part of that conversation. But today, we got to dig a deep foundation or else the rest of the conversation doesn't make sense. Here's what I want to tell you. What I have been made to be, listen close, is directly tied to what I've been made for which is determined what I've been made from. I'm going to explain that with a picture. This picture is here. This whole conversation is somehow tied to where I believe I came from. 
because where I came from is tied to my destiny, where I'm going. And my destiny and where I came from is the very thing that will instruct my purpose. What am I doing here? What you believe about where you came from is tied to where you believe this whole thing's going, which is what will instruct what you're doing here. It's like life is a giant stage that you were dropped into the middle of. I love how one guy put it. Let me just read. He says it better than I could. He says it this way. It's as if human history is this dramatic play that God's the playwright. There's been acts and scenes before us. We're born. We come out into the stage of history, but we have no idea what the story is, no idea who the heroes are, the villains. We have no idea who the playwright is. We have no idea when the story began, when it ends, what our role is, what our lines are supposed to say. And if we don't ask the playwright... We end up with a life of great confusion and perplexity. What he's saying is this, is that life is like this grand play, but there was a playwright. There was all these scenes before us. There's all these scenes after us. And knowing the scenes before us, listening to the playwright, and knowing the scenes after us are going to tell us how to play out the part we play in this grand play called life. Listen, some of you are like, I don't know that I believe in God. And I'm so glad you're here. I say this all the time. You don't have to agree with everything I say to come here. But I want to suggest for the sake of argument, if there is no God, if there is no creator, if that's not where this thing began, if we have a random beginning, then what we are left with is survival of the fittest that is simply racing towards a nebulous, ambiguous destiny. If there's no playwright, then what's the plot? What's the purpose? Where's all this going? But see, in God's story, this this whole thing of gender, this is what I'm getting ready to say next, is is something you've got to write down. There's no blanks for it, but it couches the whole conversation. In God's story, this whole thing of gender is rooted in the story of creation, and it's redeemed at the foot of the cross. The two stories that make sense of this conversation about gender is creation. Every time the New Testament authors want to talk about gender, they point back to creation. They point back to when it all began, Genesis 1. And then creation got all fouled up, and it's redeemed at the foot of the cross. All that leads to Genesis 1. You have your Bibles open. Look at the very first verse. Let's look at this and make some observations. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Done. Francis Schaeffer said this, that is the most pregnant sentence ever written. I think he's right. Like some of us have been around church too long and we read that like, right? But you think about what that sentence is saying. It's saying there is a God who existed outside of time. Before anything was, there was God. And that God on purpose, with a purpose, decided to create And if you read the rest of the passage in Genesis 1, you can kind of glance at it with me. He, on purpose, for a purpose, said, let there be light. He said, that's good. He said, on purpose, for a purpose, I want there to be sky. That's good. On purpose, for a purpose, I want there to be land and sea. That's good. On purpose, for a purpose, I want there to be plants. That's good. On purpose, for a purpose, I want there to be sun, moon, and stars. That's good. On purpose, for a purpose, I want there to be birds and animals. That's good, is what he says. I like how one comedian says it. Just listen, this just kind of caught my attention. He said, man invents and God creates. Man invented the automobile, called it amazing, 
God made a tree, said, that's good. Man invented the refrigerator, said, that's incredible. God made a rabbit, said, that's good. Guy goes on to say this, the wheels fell off the car, the refrigerator lost its cool, tree's still up, and the rabbit's still running. <laughs> that God who created, in verse 26, this is where I want to go today, I want you to look at it, do the hard work, go there with me in your Bibles, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Here's what that's saying. I want you to get this. We were made on purpose. We were made on purpose, for purpose, by a purposeful creator. I want you to write it this way in your notes. We are made to be purposeful by a God who is purposeful. Stay with me on this. In the story of God, we've been made on purpose. It wasn't random by a God who had a purpose for making us. My purpose originates from my origin. Something outside of me made me on purpose. That something or someone is God. That something or someone is God. And he made me for a purpose. My purpose is grounded in a God who is eternal. Listen. If there is an eternal creator, let's just logically do the work. If there is an eternal creator, doesn't it stand to reason that the eternal creator can state what he created his creation for? Doesn't it just stand to reason if there was a creator, he gets to say, this is what I created my creation for? Or think about it if somebody invents something. Doesn't it stand to reason that an inventor gets to somehow determine why he invents his invention? And then he gets to determine how it functions. I love, there's a guy named C.S. Lewis. If you've never read his stuff, he's not an easy read, but he's a good read. I would pick up his book called Mere Christianity, and I would work your way through it. But this is found in there. Listen close. This is so powerful. He says there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. Dial in. Some of you feel this way about God. The schoolboy replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself, and then he tries to stop it. Some of you have that view of God. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I'm afraid that's the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time, when in reality, morality and moral rules are the creator's directions for running the human machine that he created. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown, a strain, friction in the running of this machine that he created. That's why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations when you're being taught how to use any machine. The instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that because, of course, there's all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine that don't really work. You see, the designer gets to tell the design why he designed them the way he did. If we happened randomly and by accident, then possibly that speaks to our purpose and our lack thereof. The good news is this, is that God made us on purpose with a purpose. And because God made us on purpose with a purpose, really lean in on this one. It means something else. Ready? Because God made us on purpose with a purpose. Ready? It means, you with me? I, you still with me? Am not the point. I'm not the point. 
I'm not the point of this whole thing called life. I'm not the point of this whole thing called life. I'm not the point. You see, it's important for me to realize that the point, because I've been created, is to reflect the glory of the creator. Without this understanding, if I just randomly began, then here's what that means. I become the point, and the strongest people survive and become the biggest point. And when, when I just take God out of the equation, here's what happens. Here's what happens. When I take God out of the equation, here's what happens to my life. The whole point of my life is to make the point that I'm the point. You know I'm speaking truth. When I take God out of the equation, the whole point of my life becomes to make the point that somehow I'm the point. And that somehow I should be the point. And when we become the point, here's what happens. This is, we're going to go somewhere. We begin to arbitrarily assess value to things. And when we arbitrarily assess value to things, equality and questions like equality become heated discussions and competitive misunderstandings and racial divides and gender debates. Gender conversations right now that are happening, and we are in a socially, culturally charged time when it comes to gender. And those conversations are literally the product of an evolutionary social construct. Which is why it's important for us to say, what did God have to say? He made us on purpose for a purpose. Doesn't stop there. Look at this. So God created man in his own. Everybody say that word out loud with me. Image. Image. In the image of God, he created them. The personal did not evolve from the impersonal. The intelligent didn't come from the unintelligent. We were made by a personal, intelligent, living God in his likeness. What difference does it make? Here's the difference. We are made to be valued. Why? Because we are made in God's image. The fact that I'm made in the image of God helps me to get my bearings. And here's how it helps me to get my bearings. It helps me to get my bearings because it helps me realize I'm not God and I'm not an animal. I'm not the creator, but I am distinct from the rest of his creation. You ought to write that down. I'm not the creator, but I'm distinct from all the rest of his creation. God crowned man with glory and honor and placed him to rule over the rest of creation, but I am not God. But I am not simply an animal. Look here a second. You know that, right? You already, you just instinctively know that. Some of you in the room, don't raise your hand, are animal lovers. Just shake your head like this if you love animals. Like, okay? And even you know that. You, you know instinctively that there's something stamped on mankind that gives it dignity and value, that places it in a different category. Let me illustrate. We just did this neighboring series, and yesterday I was out chainsaw cutting some trees down. And my other neighbor, not the golfing neighbor, my other neighbor came out. And my other neighbor's got a dog named Oliver, right? Oliver's like 5,000 years old. I mean, Oliver's been around a long time. And so the neighbor comes over, I shut the chainsaw, I'm like, hey, we talk for a while and we'll talk about Oliver because Oliver's like, 
got a bad hip. It's kind of like limping around. Oliver can't see. So Oliver's over in my yard. He says, Oliver's got dementia. Man, Oliver can't hear, and Oliver can't do a lot of things. And he's like, oh, man, you know, Oliver's been a part of our family, and, but Oliver's really struggling, and man, this and everything. And so my neighbor began talking to me about how they're getting ready to put Oliver down. And he said, man, it's going to be hard. I said, I bet it's going to be hard. Yeah, he's like, Oliver's been around a while, but I think we're going to do it. We're going to put Oliver down. I'm not sure when, but we're going to put him down sometime soon. I'm like, oh, man, it's too bad. Hope Oliver can't hear us, you know. But, oh, but, but, but when that time comes, we'll be thinking about you. I'll pray for you or whatever, you know. But, but he's like, man, yeah, it's going to be hard. And I was like, it's going to be really hard for him, right? If you had to put your dog down really hard. But, but listen, that was a perfectly normal conversation for me to have with my neighbor, right? Just shake your head, right? And that's normal, nothing weird about that. But now replace Oliver, the dog, with his wife. Imagine me talking to my neighbor. He's like, oh, man, man, my wife, she's struggling. What's wrong? Oh, she's got a bad hip. And, and she can't see as good as she used to. And her mind's not as clear as it used to be. I'm thinking about putting her down and getting another one. Imagine that, right? Like, like you just know that ain't right, right? Like there's something that distinguishes us from the rest of creation. We are distinct. I am distinguished from my creator and the rest of creation. I am valued. I like the way James chapter 3 puts it. Here's what James 3 says. It says, with our tongues we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. What's he saying? He's saying we've been made in the image of God and every, listen close, every person you see, every person you see has been stamped with the image of God. And that means this. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, they're mortal. Their life is to us is like a life of a gnat. But it's immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors of, or everlasting splendors. Fascinating. What is he saying? I want you to write this down somewhere. He's saying all people are image bearers and have equal value. Now, guys, you've got to do the hard work and stay with me for the next five minutes. I, I think there's no excuse for followers of Christ who won't be intellectually nimble. All People are image bearers. It changes the way we navigate everything, including civil rights. Where does the whole idea of civil rights come from? It's not some modern Western thought. It comes right from the heart of God. Genesis 9. Each man, too, I'll demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God... Has God made man? God holds us accountable for the way we treat fellow image bearers because they've been made in the image of God. It's exactly what Martin Luther King was talking about when he said, you see, founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, he said. Not that we have unity substantially with God, but that we have the capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives man a uniqueness. It gives him worth and dignity. We must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. 
God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant in God's keyboard precisely because he's been made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. Listen, 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 listen. You gotta do this with me. When, when civil rights is not grounded in the image of God, what makes somebody worthy of those rights? In our secular society, what is it? If there's no image of God, then here's what it's grounded in. It's grounded in capacities. And that very train of thought is what caused Princeton University professor to say this. Because there is no God and human rights is based in capacities, that makes abortion okay because the life in the womb has less capacities than a dog or a cat. Or furthermore, than animals that we routinely eat and kill. They cannot live apart from their mom and make choices. But if that's how we attribute human rights, remember that newborn infants, senile old people, and mentally challenged people are in the same boat. Not only does it change the way we navigate civil rights, listen, this is where we're headed, it changes the way we navigate gender. Changes the way we navigate gender. Gender, gender and equality is not a modern phenomenon. Equal rights is a modern phenomenon. No. It's as old as time. It is as old as time. And it comes right out of the heart of God. You see, in the conversation when it comes to gender, it's not based on capacities. Well, this gender is stronger than the other gender. So therefore, it's, well, this gender is smarter. You can figure out which one I'm talking about, right? Than the other gender. So therefore, and we like to have the conversation based on capacities when actually value and dignity and honor flows right from the fact that men and women alike have been created in the image of God. Do you know something? That the church, when it was born, came into a Greco-Roman world that based worth on capacities. That's why there were abortions and fantasy. That's why old people and children were marginalized. Women were second-class citizens. And into that culture came the church, followers of Christ, and they became champions of the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the children, women, and the unborn. From the very earliest of times, if we embrace the whole understanding of image of God, made in the image of God, we would know several things. I want to be tender about this. We would know abortion is wrong, but stay with me. Some of you are like, yes. And we would know that those who have had abortions should never be treated like scum. I don't know where we get off doing that. If we understood the image of God, we would know there is no super race. If we believed in the image of God, we would be unusually involved in the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. And if we believed in the image of God, we would know that men and women have been equally created in the image of God and therefore with equal dignity and worth and value. Our value isn't attributed to us based on capacity. We're smarter, we're stronger, we're better, there's more. That's not how value is attributed. It is attributed because stamped on each of us is the image of God. Our purpose is grounded in a God who created us on purpose. 
with purpose. Our value is found that we have been made in his image. And look at this. We got to, this is where we're going to end today. Look at this. And then he made them male and female. That's what he created them. We've been created by a God on purpose, for a purpose. That's where our value comes from. And then it only stands the reason that there is something beautiful about the design that he gave to us. That the God who stood outside of time made us distinctly male and female with value by design. I want you to write it this way. We are made to be distinctly different by God's beautiful, intentional, purposeful design. He designed us beautifully, intentionally, purposefully to complement each other, to cooperate with each other. Why? Because he's the point to reflect his glory. We've been designed for a purpose. Our culture says all of this is fluid. And yet God says, no, 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 no. I am the designer. It's fixed in the heart of the designer. Guys, listen to me. Outside of our understanding of this, it's chaos. You know that already instinctively. You do. Imagine. Can you guys do something just a little hypothetical with me? Can we do that for a second? Imagine we're going to go help somebody build something, right? Like we're all going to go. And so there's already a big group of people there, and we're going to go help them. We've got all our tools, tool belt, and we're all going to go. We're going to help. We're eager. We're excited. And so there's all this wood and all this stuff all over the place. Like, man, we're here. We're to help. Listen, what is it you're building? I don't know. We're just building what everybody wants. Well, who's in charge? Oh, we kind of all are. We just all kind of decide what we want to do. What do you hope to achieve? I don't know. Everybody, you know, everybody gets to achieve what they want to achieve. Where do I start? Wherever you want. How many of y'all be frustrated about that, right? I'm going to tell you something. We show up to a place like that, it's going to be chaos, and we're not going to build anything that's going to reflect anything. And all God is saying is this. I designed this thing so that it would be beautiful for my glory and your good. I'm the creator. I had a purpose on purpose. That's where this all flows from. And I'm the one who gives value. And I designed it so that somehow it would reflect my glory. Guys, without God, it's chaos. Makes me think of these Old Testament passages. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know, whatever. Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. It ends in death. It's fascinating to me. I love that James says that we have a God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's what I want you to hear me say. That in this series, that's who we're going to hook on to. Like there is a fixed north star, and it's the God who doesn't change. And we're going to fix on to him and say, okay, you navigate us. And what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? Because culture is screaming at us. Culture is screaming and there's confusion. I told the earlier service this. I'm not a Facebooker. Some of you, I heard that's even out of style. But, but, but on Facebook, we talk about confusion. Okay, I, I even verified this this morning. There's like 71 different identifiers for gender. Like, like 71. Like, 
you know, and we call that progress. And, and, and somehow I, I get, you know, but, but, but this idea of progress, it feels like our culture is confused. And into that, we want to speak clarity. See, what's interesting is after God created in Genesis 1, it says this in verse 31. He saw all that he had made, and it was, say those two words out loud, very good. Like he created. He designed. If the story ended there, that'd be cool, right? But you know the story well enough to know that by Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, say these words out loud with me, did God really say? And it's the same Same, same, same lie he's been spinning today. See, behind every distortion is this lie of Satan. Did God really say, that kind of was good for then. Did God really say, I think things are different today. See, this whole conversation is rooted in the story of creation. It's redeemed at the cross. So what does this mean? Several things, and then we're done. If we believe... If we believe this, that we were created by a purposeful creator on purpose, that our value comes from God, and that we've been beautifully designed, different to complement each other, if we believe this, men and women would see each other as equal in dignity and value. Period. Stop. If we believe this, we would appreciate and embrace our differences, not as competitive differences, but as cooperative and complementary differences to reflect the point, and the point is his glory. If we believe this, we would know that the way for us to flourish very good is to somehow reflect his glory to the world as we value each other, appreciating each other's differences. Listen close. Guys, listen. If we believe this, we would honor all women, period. Women would be more than images that stimulate our senses. And they would be image bearers that we share life with. Guys, if we believed this, the foundation, we would no longer hurt women by being apathetic and passive or by being angry and aggressive. Guys, if we believed this, you and I, and you know what I'm talking about, even if the gals don't, you know what I'm talking about. You and I would not settle for a boys will be boys mentality. We would raise the bar on what it means to be a man. And might I say, we would raise the bar on the kind of gal if we're a single guy in this room that we're looking for. Gals, if you believe this, what we're talking about today, you would know you're valued, equal in the eyes of God, and you would not disparage men, always making them the butt of the joke. Gals, if you knew this, you would not hurt guys with your words and you would not settle for stereotypical, socially constructed images of yourself. Gals, single gals in the room, if you believe this, you would not settle to spend the rest of your life with a little boy who shaves and can drive.
And for some of you who are struggling in the room, can I speak to you with tenderness and kindness and compassion? If this is true, some of you are struggling, even with identity in terms of gender and what does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be... Some of you are struggling. I am so glad you're here. And if that's you, I want to talk to you. It means this, that you will struggle into, not away from a God who loves you. And that you won't choose to simply surround yourself with people who agree with you. That's not love. But that you'll be willing to surround yourself with people who will accept and love you as they walk with you into truth. The truth of a God who made us on purpose for purpose, who gives us value, and who designed us to be beautifully different, to complement each other, to reflect the point, His glory. Guys, next week, next week I want to have a conversation. I want to begin a conversation with the guys. Now listen, guys, I know something. When, when a pastor says he's going to have a conversation directed to the men, you are pretty sure you're going to get beat up and destroyed, right? That's not what's going to happen. It's not what's going to happen. I want you as a band of brothers to come be here with me. I want you to invite other brothers to come. Gals, you need to be here. You need to get as many sisters here as possible. I don't need your help in teaching the lesson, but you need to be here. This will be an important conversation for you to hear. For the next two weeks, we're going to We're going to simply talk to the fellas. We're going to talk about some things that are really, really important. So God, help us. Thanks that we can have this conversation out loud on purpose, that you love us, give us value. God, right now, there might be some in this room who are struggling. And I want to pray for them. I I pray this would be a safe place to struggle into you. I really do. Forgive, Forgive us sometimes for out of naivety or maybe feeling holier than thou, thinking our struggle is different than that struggle, or I don't know. But God, I pray that you'd help us to grab each other's hands and walk into truth in a grace-filled arena. God, as we have this conversation, us men in here, we want you to be the biggest voice in our life to tell us what does it mean to be a man. And I pray all the gals would listen in, and particularly those single gals or those moms who are raising young men, and say, okay, God, what do you think about when you think about what it means to be a man. And then, God, I pray as we talk about what does it mean to listen to your voice about what it means to be a woman. What do you see as valuable and beautiful and how did you create and design this? God, in the end of the day, in this confusion and distortion, we want to reflect your glory because you're the point. And we want to experience it for our good, which you said it's very good. We love you and we trust you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.